Here at NonFicPod, we are really looking forward to Wild Words Festival. In fact, we've been catching up with some of the authors who are appearing. First of all, we sat down with Basim Khan to see what he's looking forward to. Basim Khan is a serial killer. Uh, I write crime fiction, and so I am always finding intriguing ways to bump off one of my one of my characters. Uh, when I'm not writing, I tend to play cricket very badly. I'm usually injured. This season, I've managed to injure myself before the season even begins. But I've always been a nature lover. Um, one of my fondest memories of my late father is uh, the pair of us watching wildlife documentaries together. And he would love he would love documentaries about lions on the Serengeti, and you know he'd burst into laughter watching a lion make mincemeat of a, of a gazelle. Um, but for me, you know, I've always loved that that whole aspect of nature. So as soon as I as soon as I heard uh, Wild Words Festival, I, I I just just wanted to be out there. Join Vasim and a whole host of other amazing writers at Wild Words Fest. Have a look at wildwordsfest.eventbrite.com and use the code NONFICPOD for 10% off all tickets. Ben Machel is a feature writer for The Times and The Times magazine, and is a contributor to publications including Vice and Esquire. He's been shortlisted for Feature Writer of the Year at the British Press Awards. Welcome, Ben. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. The Unusual Suspect reads like a thriller with a complex protagonist who just happens to be a human being. In this book, at least, who is Stephen Jakely? Yes, Stephen's a young man who, I suppose, in the run-up to the financial crisis um, of of 2008, had become kind of increasingly preoccupied with really the, the the harm that was being done or he felt was being done um, to, to the planet and to the people of the planet by this global capitalist system. Um, and as the financial crisis began to unfold, um, he did what I suppose a lot of people at the time were doing and were looking around and saying, you know, someone should do something. And Stephen decided that he would do something. And, and what he decided he would do would be to become a bank robber. You know, he, he would literally rob from the rich. He would, he would, he would rob from the banks and find a way to distribute this wealth back to the poor, back to the, the, the people who needed it. And you know, in so doing, the, the, the plan was, um, really kickstart a process that would help save the planet. As I was reading the book, I was struck by how incredibly proficient Stephen was at certain elements anyway of his plan, uh, particularly things like leaving behind the, these caches of, of outfits and disguises. It reads almost like a Jason Bourne in places, and yet you don't shy away from the complexity of what it was that that he was doing. So what was it that drew you to Stephen's story? There's this contradiction that kind of runs throughout the story, and, and really kind of is at the heart of Stephen. You know, he comes up with this plan, this completely, you know, you or I would say ridiculous plan. You're a geography student. Um, who has lived a very, very solitary, isolated life. You're very, very naive. And you would think, okay, I'm going to become a bank robber. The, the fact that he kind of arrives at this point, the fact that he kind of arrives at this stage where he's like, well, this is what I have to do. The process of getting there to me was like, that was really interesting because, you know, as someone who's very straight-laced and almost believes that there's a kind of um, 
these sort of societal force fields like that would stop you doing this like it would be physically impossible to walk into a bank and say give me all your money the fact that Stephen arrived at a point where he kind of realized well no there, there isn't a force field there like you can do this kind of thing I suppose that the, the drip 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 effect of different factors that led him to this realization was one of the things that really really kind of attracted me um but then as you kind of sort of you know mentioned he, he was proficient in some senses and there's this kind of what I found that the more time I spent with him and the more time we kind of really sort of dug into his actions, that there was this really kind of compelling contradiction between an almost hyper-rational approach. You know, he's has a very sensible way of doing something which he's never done before. You know, he's like, well, how do you rob a bank? Well, how do you rob a bank? You know, and he does what a kind of um, intelligent person would do. And he looks it up, you know, it kind of, he kind of Googles it. He kind of, starts to see how other people have done it you know it kind of reminded me of when i need to do some diy job and you go on youtube and you can find people and say well you got this is these are the wires you don't cut and he kind of it, it wasn't a necessary like a kind of a passionate it, it was almost a kind of a dispassionate approach um he's very logical but then you take a step back and he's doing something that's completely logical he's doing something that's the opposite of sensible and it's as the story progresses, it's just this odd interplay of Stephen being <clears throat> kind of almost admirably clear-sighted about what he wants to do and then completely swept away by the, the, the narrative that he's created in his head. I get the sense from your writing of him of a person who has reached these extremely well-buttressed and well, well-drawn well conclusions based on what he's seen, the poverty when he travels in Indonesia and the revelations of the financial crisis. And it's merely the, as you say, the societal force field about not robbing banks is set aside. Everything else seems to follow incredibly logically. Yeah, and, and entering, I suppose, entering that space was one of the really interesting things because, you know, I think had this been a story that was, you know, some guy for completely venal reasons or because he is, you know, under some severe delusion kind of sets about trying to become a bank robber, then it wouldn't have been half as interesting. Um, and also he probably wouldn't have got quite as far as you say, it's the fact that when you begin to you know, read Stephen's diaries from the time, particularly which are absolutely full of these kind of really well-presented and well-articulated concerns, you know, um, and, 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 and lines of argument, right, where he's essentially looking at the world and the, the way the world works and what humanity's doing to it we, we, with this kind of outsider's clarity and I, I don't want to get too much kind of oh you know he's this kind of outsider savant type guy it's just simply that he, he for reasons we may get into kind of on account of his social isolation uh, amongst other things he just had this perspective I suppose on you know what was happening around the world and where it was inevitably going to lead to you know there's only so much stuff on the planet there's only so many resources there's a system which makes people desperate for more and more and more and more you know where is the end point these days <laughs> this kind of stuff isn't kind of crazy controversial thought but maybe in in, in, in the early in the early 2000s it was, it was less mainstream um so yeah it, it, part of the appeal i suppose is the weight of his logic and kind of almost getting pulled in when you're reading what he would write in his diaries or even talking to him more recently 
I've just been kind of like, well, yeah, I suppose you're kind of right. Um, th- th- that was an interesting process to put yourself through. How did that relationship develop? How did you manage to straddle that, you know, walk that tightrope between sitting with Stephen and understanding Stephen's place and maintaining the journalistic perspective, the knowing that you're needing to relate this to a wider audience and also bring in, uh, at a slightly later point, the stories of the people who had been on the other side of the counter in some of those banks and, and bookies. That is the job, right? Like that's kind of kind of the, the sort of pass-fail test of, um, of, of every piece of work that you do that, you know, that involves another human being. I suppose I was just very, very conscious of the fact that while on the one hand, this is someone who had a story to tell um, and also was very fortunate for me, kind of curious himself about how things went the way they did and why he did what he did. You know, he wasn't, he didn't have a slick narrative necessarily presented that he wanted to kind of convince me of. You know, I think lots of our conversations were both of us kind of scratching our heads. And that was a nice position to be in because you felt that you were speaking to somebody who was, he didn't even necessarily always want to be there. You know, I think a lot of the stuff that we talked about, a lot of the ground that we covered was painful to him, obviously, you know, talking about things of which he's, you know, hugely um, remorseful of, pain that he's inflicted on, on, on people. Um, being in solitary confinement in a high security US jail when you're on the autism spectrum, things like this are not things that he was kind of particularly kind of delighted to be having me asking question and question and question about. But, um, you know, it was very clear to me quite early on that he felt it kind of necessary, that he wanted to go through this process um, as much as I did. So, you know, obviously I had to kind of exercise all the journalistic, you know, rigour and, 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 and being kind of aware that, you know, this is just one person's story, one person's version of events. But I also felt relatively confident in that he wasn't there to kind of spin me a yarn. And then, as you say, you know, throughout the book, I speak to you know several dozen other people, whether it's people in, the, in law enforcement uh, in, in the UK or in the US, or you know, people have been victims of of, of, of Stephen's crimes. So I, I felt I, I was able to kind of um, offer these other perspectives as well. It wasn't just a kind of, and then I did this, and then I did that, and then I did this. It was, and then he did this, and then I remember him, you know, talking to me like this, or kind of, you know, brandishing a knife at me and stuff. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Like that that was probably the thing that was probably kept me awake at night the longest is just making sure that you were presenting something that that that, that wasn't just a yarn. And you spoke about the the time that Stephen spent particularly in the US penal system. And your writing about that is I think some of the most painful reading in the book. I think I'm right in saying that Stephen didn't have his diagnosis when he was first imprisoned in the US. Yeah, that's right. Um, so when um, the, the, the story eventually leads Stephen to, to travel into the United States in, in an attempt to get a, a, a real handgun, which he would then smuggle back um, somehow to, to the United Kingdom um, for, for, for use in his crimes, <clears throat> and he's apprehended. At one point, he attempts to escape from the U.S. Marshals who are, you know, essentially tra- transporting him from a, a courthouse to jail. And, you know, very long story short, don't try and escape from the U.S. Marshals. It's, you know, a, a bad idea. And he, he, he does end up in 
solitary confinement in, in a federal prison. And he does end up in um, it's really awful conditions. He's in a, a very, very small cell um, and he's in solitary confinement. And this is really his first experience of being behind bars. And, you know, what we know of people um, who are on the autism spectrum is that very often um, things which they, I don't want to say require, but, but things which are more difficult for them is, is, is you know, being taken out of routines and not knowing what's going to happen. And these feelings of disorientation, which very sadly he was specifically subjected to because they were so worried he was going to try and escape again. You know, they, they weren't sure who this guy was. And in speaking to the, the prison authorities and in speaking to the marshals, as far as they were concerned, he was this kind of potentially some kind of international criminal savant, some member of some anarchist cell. They really didn't want him getting away. As you say, the, the fact that um, that then does lead him to be put in these really straightened circumstances um, was just incredibly, I mean, it'd be challenging for anybody. Um, it was particularly challenging for Stephen. And the fact that he has gone through that experience and similarly to his experiences in Indonesia and ex- experiencing of seeing poverty, he's come out from that and is now working on things like penal reform. So this is a story that takes place on both sides of the Atlantic and the book has found an audience on both sides as well. What differences have you found in the way that Stephen's story is received on both sides of the Atlantic? Is there a difference? There's not been a discernible difference. You know, I think uh, beyond the kind of probably US readers coming to get to grips with the geography of Devon and sort of Worcestershire and places like that. But but in, in, in terms of how it's been reviewed and in terms of the comments that I, I've seen people leave, that, that there's not been anything that kind of really marks out, you know, a kind of like, like a fault line in, in, in terms of the differences. And now that you mentioned that, that is kind of interesting to me because, you know, in, in some ways, the, the, the his actions, you know, robbing banks in seaside towns on the north coast of Devon or in, you know, the outskirts of Worcestershire, you know, it's not Al Capone. It's not, Hol- it's not kind of, it's not Jason Bourne. Um, but I, I suppose maybe um, the, the way that the book's been received in the US shows that it's maybe more about the kind of the internal side. You know, it's more about the Stephen's uh, story of, of how he gets to this point um, rather than the kind of the uh, maybe more whiz-bang kind of heisty type thing. So uh, I guess in a sense, that's really that's a really good thing. The window into the complexity of uh, Stephen's reasoning and how that then leads to... Actually, I think I'm wrong in that. Almost the straightforwardness of Stephen's reasoning and how that leads to his actions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we, we sort of referenced it earlier, but just his, you know, immutable logic, this kind of, you know, he almost a kind of the equation like clarity. You know, so much of his journal and diary entries was kind of rhetoric. It was kind of stuff that you would probably see posted online. That There aren't sort of chinks of doubt when it comes to kind of his sense of this in, 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 in injustice that's I mean that's kind of the nub of it right it's the kind of it's the injustice that so many people around the world are languishing in real poverty and it's not necessary and it's because we have a banking system and a global financial system that is set up to ensure you know and you read it and you kind of it's hard to kind of pick real holes in it and and, and one of the things which was for me as somebody who doesn't really know anything about very much 
really getting into the financial crisis and kind of started to kind of look under the bonnet in terms of, well, you know, what was happening and what were supply mortgages and, you know, why did this sort of cataclysmic kind of crash occur? And you get into it and you're kind of like, oh, yeah, you're completely right. It's just literally people being really greedy and hubristic and callous towards other people you know there's it sounds quite studenty you know so much of you know um what Stephen writes about in, in, in his diaries to himself is quite kind of student uniony but then you know he was he wasn't proved wrong you know in this tale i i found myself sitting alongside Stephen and thinking there but for the internalized belief that you don't you just don't rob a bank <laughs> Um, goes, you know, sort of 20-odd-year-old me. It's a work that shows empathy and understanding without necessarily complete acceptance of everything Stephen's done. And one of the things I noticed about the pacing of this was that the the narratives of the people who Stephen had hurt come in a bit later on, after we've seen Stephen's awful experiences in the US penal system. And you also at the same time bring in Stephen's reaction to his realisation of the hurt that he's given. When you were structuring the book, how much of that was a sort of very deliberate thought of how to weight these these beats almost? I mean, when it came to structuring very early on, I knew that it would have to I'd have to I'd have to do some kind of renovation in terms of the timeline because his time in the US penal system you know, which was about a year. He's not just in one jail. I mean, he spends three or four months in solitary. Then he moves to another jail. Then he moves to a, jail, a huge federal uh, facility in New York, and he meets American criminals, many of whom are exceptionally hardened. I, I think if I'd just started at the start, then the book would have probably his crimes would have finished about halfway through, and then he'd have been in jail. And the jail thing was fascinating, not just because of who he meets and the struggles he has, but also because it's a process through which he begins to understand, you know, that this fantasy, can, and it becomes this fantasy that he is in, in, inhabiting, it, you know, it starts to get real. <clears throat> um, so I, I definitely wanted that. Um, I think I, it, it was just a, a, a pretty practical thing of like, I, I don't want to stop his, uh, the, his crimes halfway through the book. So the idea of uh, essentially bouncing between um, his time in, in solitary confinement and, and, and in prison and then his actions 12 to 18 months before seemed to kind of be the, 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 the best way of doing that um, in, in terms of kind of introducing people to the other voices and the victims of his crimes. It just felt that you almost to mirror the process Stephen went through of having this righteous indignation, seeing, you know, understanding that the world was unfair alighting on this radical course of action and it's all exciting and then it all goes horribly wrong and then the, the hangover kind of kicks in and that's the, those voices kind of serve to, to really underline that, I guess. There is one other voice in the book or another supporting character that really helped me, um, I think, understand Stephen and that is when, uh, in his brief periods when he's not in solitary confinement, he meets a white supremacist yes. in his cell. Yes. Yeah, and, and, you know, I don't want to say anything um, to do with Stephen's experiences. It's, it's funny, certainly not in a ha-ha way. But in talking to, in speaking to Stephen after the fact, you know, he, he's a very, very intelligent guy and he's a very um, sort of willing, as, as, as I mentioned, to kind of question himself and, and, and question his motives. But, in, in you know, he's also kind of 
pedantic and in some ways quite still socially naive. And he, I think it's in New York, he does end up sharing a cell for a period of time with a you know avowed white supremacist. And I think it took I think it took Stephen a while to kind of work out like why this what this guy's problem was, you know, why he was giving him a hard time for kind of eating with, you know, black inmates and stuff. And the penny sort of starts to drop and they have these kind of, <laughs> they have these these kind of debates and Stephen just kind of won't let it lie because to him, you know, quite apart from being morally wrong, being being racist, he says it just doesn't make any sense. You know, in, in the way that he interprets this is well, obviously, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's evil and, and, and backwards. But what are you even basing this on? Like, this is not logical, you know, which is completely true. It's just not the tack that I suppose most people would take. And you know, over a period of nights in their bunk. Um, I think Stephen just grinds this guy down, you know, just by just being, yeah, but no, but that's just, yeah, but why would you, but that doesn't even make any sense. You know, it just, non's just not letting it lie. You do get a, even though I, I never managed to track down the, 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 the inmate in question, you do get a sense of what it is that motors, or at this point motored Stephen. It was a combination of sort of logic and, injustice but also just this kind of um stamina i suppose this kind of like moral stamina to kind of just keep going you know with someone who most people you'd probably be quite afraid of it kind of didn't occur to him to be afraid you know if it had maybe if he'd been a bit more wordy wise he would have asked to move cells or something but you know he just eventually does his best to bring him to reason i i gets Stephen's discomfort off the it leaps off the page um both in that one and also with things that just don't make sense when he uh pretends he's doing research on forensics and he gets an answer about the fingerprints and I was absolutely struck by the fact that even though he gets an answer that should calm him down he remembers this with fury do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So it, it kind of goes back to what I mentioned earlier on, this kind of really interesting combination of just very canny resourcefulness that he demonstrates time and again. And then also this inertial sort of drive, pull to kind of do this ridiculous thing. So Stephen ends up in a kind of altercation in the Netherlands, in Amsterdam, and he commits a crime. Um, I think he may pull a knife on someone. Um, he, he, he takes some money and he runs off. And Stephen spends a lot of time very, very concerned that, you know, they have his fingerprints. He's committed a crime in the Netherlands. They'll be looking for him. And as he's committing his crimes later in the UK, for him, it's this kind of sort of Damocles over his head that the Dutch authorities will, uh, you know, contact the British police and say, we've got these fingerprints. The British police say, well, we've got these fingerprints and they'll get a match and then work out who he is. And so to work out whether that would happen, Stephen comes up with a plan and he essentially phones the police. And he says, um, I'm a university student. I'm doing a, a module on you know, crime and society. What happens if you have um, you know, the prince of someone who's done a crime in, in the Netherlands, say, and in the UK? And he, he makes sure to kind of, he doesn't just come out and ask it. It's one of several, several questions. And he essentially works out, hang on, they're not going to do anything. You know, that there's, for some reason, this is not going to kind of um, lead to me being implicated. And the, the, the upshot is that he should, like I say, he should be relieved. You know, instead, he's kind of really kind of put out. He's like, well, this is just ridiculous. Like, think of all the crimes that we could be solving 
you know, but by, by, you know, just having a database where we can kind of compare these prints and stuff. And, you know, I think when he returns, finally returns to the UK to stand trial after coming back from the US, you know, he makes a point of this. He says, you really should look into this because you could have caught me a long time ago and think of all the, you know, think of all the real criminals that you could be getting. And I suppose it's just one of these moments where you can see these two sides of him kind of um, straining, you know, the resourceful, you know, astute side, you know, to, to, to pass, to, to make that phone call and think, well, I'll just find out. And then the kind of slightly indignant outrage side that, you know, things aren't being done properly. I felt his, his agony at the idea that the system could be so badly broken and that, you know, while, while most of us would probably go, oh, thank fuck for that. It's like, yeah, but yeah. why? Why are you so rubbish? Um, yeah. And I, I, th- I think it also taps into this other side of the story whereby, you know, there are points where time and again, there are points where Stephen could have just stopped. You know, he kind of, he's very adept at getting away. Okay, he's, he's not that great at robbing banks. Um, he's very adept at escaping from the scene of the crime. And this is helped by the fact that, you know, in speaking to the police detectives, they're just like, yeah, geography students, geography lecturers are not where we go when there's been a bank robbery. You know, we go to pubs, we go to places where known armed robbers hang out. You know, people do not start their criminal career by robbing banks. It doesn't happen. You know, they, they start when they're 14 nicking cars and then they, st- you know, then they get into fights and then they do a bit of burglary. And, you know, you, 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 by the time someone's doing banks, they're either from abroad or they've got, you know, they've been in jail before. Um, we, you know, so Stephen's ability to kind of um, escape capture, partly because of his own resourcefulness, but partly just because of the profile, his sort of unique profile. Yeah, so there are all these points um, after every crime he commits and, you know, which he gets away. You know, the police are, are baffled, they're scratching their heads. And there are so many points where I'm thinking, okay, now stop. Okay, this is the point where you stop, you know, where you realise, actually, yeah, I'm not going to hit the jackpot. I'm not going to get into a bank vault. I'm not going to kind of, you know, get this, you know, £100,000 that I use as seed money to set up this organisation that will then go legit. And then, you know, there are so many points where you, where, you're thinking, okay, Stephen, you've had a great run. Just be a geography student now. Um, but I think what becomes apparent, you know, both in, in speaking to him and also reading his diaries, is that he, he's aware of this, you know, and I think he needs that motivation to see it through. You know, it's, I don't want readers to think or, or people listening to think that it was very straightforward for him. You know, obviously he's indignant, obviously he's got these worldviews, but it's scary. Like, you know, it's frightening to, to rob a bank and, and, and to do these things. Obviously, it's even more frightening for the people on the receiving end. But just from Stephen's perspective, you know, he required a lot of psyching up. Um, and I think as he gets deeper and deeper into this identity, really, that he constructs for himself, he needs these things to kind of keep him going. I think he kind of, you know, what I kind of call that sort of Damocles, that idea that, you know, well, the, the Dutch police have got my prints, so it's a matter of time. I think there's part of him that wanted there to be that time pressure that to keep him going, to kind of make him kind of sort of reach his goals. Um, and w- one of the things which I found, I would say I found quite interesting, I did find it interesting, was um, almost the way that he kind of identifies this in himself. He's, he doesn't kid himself, you know, and 
you know, he's writing all this down, you know, he's between his lectures in his halls of residence room, you know, he'll write down, and I, you know, I kind of wish people would see, like he'll go to a geography lecture, he will ride on his bike into Worcester, he'll buy a sausage roll, he'll walk along the river, and he will say, even the most kind of mundane trip around town, I can turn it into a scouting mission, I can turn it into me, you know, kind of casing up banks, everything becomes more exciting. You know, everything becomes instantly more, you know, more compelling and interesting. I've got this drama now in my life. And he's telling himself this and he's kind of, you know, I can't really speculate to what degree it's to do with him you know, being on the autism spectrum, you know, uh, but he doesn't seem willing to kind of kid himself about his motivations. He says it's exciting. You know, he says the fame of seeing you know, these blurry CCTV images images of himself in the local paper. It's a thrill. And, you know, he, he, he doesn't kind of deny it, you know. And it, I think this sense of purpose that these crimes give him and this the, the appeal to his ego, you know, is one of the things that, you know, I don't want to get lost in the, 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 the telling of it because, you know, ostensibly it's this kind of, you know, very earnest and... and, and, and um, uh, sort of righteous guy on a mission, which he, which he was, but it's the way that he be, he begins to become corrupted by his crimes, and he begins to be fantasize, you know, about the yachts and about the kind of getting his, uh, you know, even stuff like getting laser eye surgery. He's like, maybe I can get laser laser eye surgery, and it's like that's just to me was sort of so humanizing because it's like you've got a twenty one year old guy who doesn't really have any friends. And he's on his own in Worcester doing a geography degree. And he's also a bank robber. He's also Robin Hood. But he's also got the same kind of insecurities as like everyone else. He's like, well, maybe I could, you know, maybe I'll dye my hair. And maybe I'll, oh, I think he does dye his hair. And you get, you know, I'll get, I'll, I'll sort out so I don't need glasses. <laughs> Just the, sort of the incongruity of, of, of him kind of in the same paragraph saying, oh, curses, you know, they've, they've got photos of, of me, you know, escaping and then saying, talking about the price of a sausage roll or talking about a film they enjoyed and then sort of saying, and maybe, um, you know, maybe I can use some of the money to kind of buy a boat. And it's just this, it's just this mind in action. It's just churning. You know, you can see these kind of, all these different things simultaneously going around in his head. And I think that it was some of these things that kind of really sustained me during the writing because it's, it's complicated, but the complexity of it, just made it like so much more sort of human and compelling, I suppose. You mentioned the the mind in action. There is a time when uh, he meets a, a woman on his travels, and he's talking to her about some of his his ideas, and he he uses this brilliant phrase about what he's doing, uh, where he says he's contemplating the fruition of unconventional financial gain, which I think you on the page, I certainly know I wrote on a post-it note as soon as I read that, it's between collateralized debt obligation and contemplating the fruition of unconventional financial gain. Those are both beautiful euphemisms. What is it about, you know, someone who is, you know, language is your stock in trade. How do, how did Stephen use language? How do we all use language to distance ourselves from reality? And how in this book, I've noticed you use language to put things back into reality. Spending so much time with Stephen's journals and his, his writing and his essays and his poems, you know, from the age of, I guess, about 12 
you know, through to the, the, the period of his crimes and afterwards. Stephen, you know, has a way with words. It's a cheesy thing to say, but it's, you know, they, they it's his it's sort of principal way of expressing himself. What was interesting to me was that he begins really with a, this intense interest in things like space-time, you know, and things which are to do with, you know, real Stephen Hawking's kind of stuff, um, you know, quantum theory and all this kind of, you know, things which are quite equational um, and, 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 and numerical. Um, but he writes it all down longhand and he then becomes quite poetic, as many of us do, uh, around the age of sort of 14, 15. And then he kind of becomes really quite into poetry. And what, sometimes it's not even conscious, I would say, the way that he kind of just expresses himself. You know, it, it has a cadence and it has a, you know, it, you know, there is a real kind of mock epic feel to some of it. And you can tell that he's using words because he likes the words and stuff. You know, it, it, these are things which, you know, it, I would have liked readers to be able to have a lot, a much deeper sense of, um, simply because you know it's humanising, I suppose. Um, uh, and but yeah, Stevens, the, the way he euphemises, you're right. I guess, I, I guess, I, I guess we all do. And I think this is a, 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 a often a, a, a symptom of, of, of someone with with ASD using um, complex words sometimes when simple words will do. Um, this is something that you kind of spot here and there, um, but you know he makes it work. <laughs> you know, like you say, like it kind of. Um, uh, you, 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 I don't feel the need to kind of get the red pen out. It's just slightly florid, and sometimes you have to kind of check: is, is that definitely the word that you meant? But you know, my, my editors do do that to me, so I, I can't. You know, I can't throw stones. But I think maybe partly as a result of that, and really partly as a result of the way in which Stephen expresses himself when writing these kind of slightly manifesto-y you know, sort of type screeds is, I felt it's kind of my job to pair things back a little bit and just put things um, sort of quite cle- clearly and cleanly, um, which again should, should be the job anyway. But you think, who am I in a book? You know, um, let, let's get the thesaurus out. But maybe um, I, I felt I, I sort of had to kind of counterbalance that slightly. You know, um, Stephen's writing does get, uh, you know, there's some really good, great set piece moments, I, I, I think. I think it was just my job to kind of um, sort of guide people to um, almost a bit like acting like footnotes at times, I guess. I, I don't know the stuff, obviously, that didn't make it in there, but some of the gems that you pick, and particularly you know, referring to robbery as unconventional financial gain and the, the sort of distancing effect of that and realising how much of that is done in mainstream financial trading things like subprime and collateralized debts obligation oh yeah, yeah. i mean that that, that 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 that's a really good observation it, it, it hadn't occurred to me when i was um when i was writing but yeah it's two sides of the same coin and it really did sort of blur that kind of moral distinction between you know the people in the boardrooms and stephen with his backpack full of disguises when you're writing a feature or a book of this length and there is a central subject to that book how much pre-research do you do what how do you prepare yourself to to meet that person and to to develop that relationship it, it really you know depends who they are and how much material there's about them obviously you try and you know have a command of the facts 
of their of their life. But I think what I found over the years is that it, it's really trying to be imaginative about other people. You know, it's kind of about trying to kind of empathy such as it's a kind of a, it's such a smug sort of soft focus kind of word. But I suppose it, what I try and do is something maybe a little bit more functional, um, not just going, oh, yeah, 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 no, yeah, that must have been, but just sort of trying to be like, okay, well, what would I be worried about if I was in that position? Or what would, what li- almost like little day-to-day things would kind of be on my landscape or what would I imagine would be on my landscape if I had your job or if I was facing the challenges that you were? And, and, and this is irrelevant in whether, irrespective of whether it's, you know, talking about Stephen or talking about any number of people and they, you know, profile, you know, for the times or, or for whatever. I don't say meditating on them, but just sort of letting them be knock about in your head just sort of for a day or two. I sort of doing stuff and just kind of have them sort of there or thereabouts in your thoughts and not necessarily with any particular view to kind of, you know, unravel them or anything kind of as clever as that, but just kind of think, <laughs> thinking about them, you know, and, and then seeing what things occur to you. Um, it's nothing more methodical than that. Other people have, will have different ways of doing it and have, have different approaches that'll probably work better. But for me and, and who I am and how I am, that tended to work for me so far. Well, Stephen Jakeley will definitely be knocking about in my head for a good time to come. Uh, the Unusual Suspect is now available uh, in the UK. It's published by Canongate. Uh, it's available from all good bookshops. And Ben, can you tell people where they can find you if they want to follow you online? Oh, yeah, sure. If, if you're desperate, I'm on Twitter uh, at Ben underscore Machel, M-A-C-H-E-W-L. Uh, and that's really it. Um, I wouldn't go looking anywhere else if I were you. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on Nonfic Pod. No, no, it's been great. Thanks so much for all the questions. They're really, really interesting. And it, it was nice to kind of... Um, Nice to sort of get get back into it and spend some more time thinking about uh, thinking about Stephen. A fascinating story. And you can follow NonFicPod on Twitter at NonFicPod. And if you enjoyed this episode, please forward it to three of your friends. We're always trying to find new readers and new listeners just like you. Thank you so much for joining us. Today's guest was Ben Machel. I've been Emma Byrne, your host. A mix and tech was by Mike Wire. You can really help us by rating, reviewing and sharing non-fic pod. Every little helps to build our audience and that means we get to share fantastic non-fiction with more people just like you. And it helps us to keep bringing you the greatest authors and the hottest reads. 